You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Surprisingly, the nation states will be quieter, and and maybe that's not surprising, but they have more patience. Their motives are different. They're not trying to ransom you, and they don't want to be burned. They don't want to be identified. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Joshua Neal. He's the chief data scientist for Securonics. All right, Joe, before we jump into our stories, we've got a couple of bits of uh, follow-up here. Uh, You're going to kick things off for us. What do you have to share? Yeah, Dave, I wanted to follow up on the story about my identity theft. I actually had a conversation with the uh, counselor, I guess, Mm. advisor from my identity theft protection service. Uh, Mm -hmm. And she was telling me some things. Uh, Of course, I mentioned last week about the uh, credit holds you can put or the fraud alerts you can put on your credit report and how one is for... Uh, you know, you have one year and seven years, but something new that I didn't know you could do is you can request or or tell uh, check systems that there's been a uh, fraud incident on your person, yeah, right. And then once check systems knows about it, the banks know about it, and they won't let anybody open an account in your name without you being physically present in a bank branch. Oh. Which is actually the way it should be anyway, I think. Huh. <laughs> but I found that interesting. So I'm so, doing So it's that. kind of a global thing where if someone tries to open a checking account in your name, it, it puts a flag on it? Yeah. it it. I don't know if it's global. It's certainly national in yeah, yeah. the U.S. But it puts a flag on my identity in the uh, check systems database huh. that says, don't let this guy open an account online. I see. Make him come in. I see. Interesting. Uh, which – I don't know. Maybe that should be the default. Yeah. These these young people today opening their bank accounts online. I don't. Yeah, that's right. Angry old man shakes fist at the way new things are done. I want a banker that I can shake hands with. Right. (laughs) So it doesn't seem like something I would ever need to do. So I think I'm going to put this on my, uh, I'm definitely going to put this on this uh, check systems alert. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How, How quaint writing checks. Huh. Right. Well, yeah, I don't write checks. <laughs> Actually, I do write some checks. I am kind of old-fashioned that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So All right. The matter's pretty much closed now. All right. Well, good. Glad All's well that ends well, right? Indeed. All right. Uh, some more follow-up. We got a, a question from a listener uh, named Benji who wrote in. Uh, Joe, you want me to read this or do you want to read it? Oh, you can go ahead and read this, All Dave. right. They say, hi, Dave and Joe. Love the pod. I was hoping you could follow up on advice for one issue you spoke about in your last episode. In your catch of the day, you said that we see people open up a Gmail account, change the name on the Gmail account to your name, and then send emails from it. Uh, Benji writes, I know this all too well. I work for a synagogue, and for over the past two years, we've been targeted by scammers. More specifically, our congregants have. People sign up for free Gmail accounts, change the name to our rabbi, Mm -hmm. and then email our congregants directly asking for help, gift cards for cancer patients or something like that. This scam has actually been documented by news outlets affecting not just our synagogue, but many across the country. 
Uh, we've covered this here before as well, yes. Joe, haven't we? Yeah, yeah they happened at a, uh, a church in Rockville that I went to. Yeah. Uh, Benji writes, I've done everything I can think of to protect our domain uh, and staff accounts, but how do I protect our congregants? Many of them are elderly or technologically challenged and may fall victim to this. We've sent out warnings, but these attacks happen every two to four weeks, so constantly emailing warnings is not helpful. I've also reported to Gmail and the Internet Crime Complaint Center several times, because this, but because the scammers can simply create new accounts, there's nothing to stop them. Right. I suspect there's a list of synagogues with rabbi and congregant emails up for sale on the dark web, and it's being sold as a package, says the scam emails are almost identical. Luckily, we do not post our member directory online, but they have targeted any email published on our website or online bulletins. Mm-hmm. Any advice would be appreciated. Thanks for the work you do, Benji. Yeah, this is a tough one, Benji, and I understand it's very frustrating, but yeah. you're absolutely right. These guys can target your congregants just by opening up a Gmail account and pretending to be the rabbi. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, that's exactly what happened in the uh, the church that I was at over in Rockville. I think it's St. Mary's. Hmm. It, the, the priest was saying in, to the congregation, I will never send you an email asking you for gift cards. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and that's, I think, the best solution for your rabbi. I don't, um, you know, that of course relies on everybody going uh, going to services regularly, right? Yeah. Um, it, uh, yeah. Is there a Jew- Jewish equivalent to uh, to Christmas and Easter where everybody shows up? You know, twice like, a year twice Jews. A, yeah, yeah. Tw- like twice a year Catholics. That, <laughs> yes, you know, you can't yes. find you can't find seating anywhere in, in yeah, the church for yeah. Easter Mass. But, yeah, certainly. I mean, there's Passover, and right. there are the you know various high holidays. So yeah. yes. So maybe at those at those uh, events where you have every we have the place packed. Yeah, have the rabbi make that announcement. Right. Um. The the more ears that hear it, the better. It's just. I mean, and and it's these people are despicable. They will prey on anybody they can and use uh use these appeals to humanity, and mm-hmm. they will impersonate uh, a member of the clergy, and they have no problem doing this. Yeah. Um. So it's yeah. I I absolutely get Benji's frustration. I share it. It is uh. It's it's difficult to deal with, but the only thing to to do is continually tell people we will never ask you for gift cards. Please don't respond to these kind of emails. Yeah, and I think um, I agree that the ed, that really education is the best avenue for this. Unfortunately, right. it's there. I don't think there's a technological solution. There to isn't. This. These guys can go anywhere they want, and I mean, you're you're doing all the right stuff. You're reporting to the Internet Crimes Complaint Center. Uh, you know, they're never going to catch these guys. These guys are out of the country. Um, uh, yeah. probably in Nigeria. Nigeria is where they run a lot of gift card scams out of. Yeah, I would um, also say that um, being consistent by not having these sorts of things, by not having legitimate requests come from the synagogue via email right? to say, you know, this is the only way, the only way we will put out these sorts of requests is through this. They will be on our website. They right. will be, you know, some some sort of, um, more secure messaging system than just sending out an email and sticking to that, right? So that uh, it doesn't get fuzzy. That people don't expect to, that that to be something. When so that when you say you will never get an email requesting money from us, that is so, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yep. Um. But yeah, boy, it's a tough one. It is. It's man. It, it angers me. Yeah. It really angers me. Yeah. 
All right. Well, uh, if any of our listeners have uh, ideas for this, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. And uh, if we have any good solutions to this problem, uh, we'd be happy to share them with our listeners. Absolutely. All right. Let's move on to some stories here. And uh, I'm going to start things off for us. Uh, I've got an interesting story here. Uh, this is from a, a couple weeks ago. And um, you know, Apple not long ago released their AirTags product, right? And it received a lot of attention. Uh, this is a product that uses um, uh, it's basically tracking the location of the AirTag itself, and it uses the fact that there are so many iOS devices out there in the world uh, that when this device gets in the proximity of an iOS device, they communicate with each other over Bluetooth. And the iOS device says, hey, I, I was near an AirTag. Here's the ID of it, and here's where it is. So it's kind of like Tile. It's, it's, yes, it is right. just like Tile, uh, which is an interesting point to me that um, a lot of people got their dander up over AirTags and the ways that it can be used to stalk people. Right. Um, pe there's been reports of it being used to uh, – people have attached them with magnets to expensive cars. So they know where the car goes at night, and then it makes it easier for them to steal the car. Um, That's very creative. Yes. Uh, but <laughs> it's what, what's been interesting to me is that when Apple came out with this product, which is, as you say, essentially does the same thing that the Tile, Tile product yeah. does. Tile didn't receive the, the media attention that Apple did um, on this. And right. I think on the one hand— Look, nothing uh, attracts web traffic like a bad story about Apple, right? Yeah. So there's that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, um, people like there are people out there like bashing Apple, but also I think you know Apple runs at a different scale than Tile does. I they, would agree. They, they, a lot more of these AirTags are going to be out in the world, and they're they're leveraging their own communication platform, right? right. So, and there are so many more iOS devices too. So yeah, um, I, I think there's some legitimacy to that. Um, this story, however, is fascinating in that uh, a researcher took an Apple AirTag, put it in the mail mm -hmm. uh, in Germany, uh, and this researcher was trying to figure out – this is an activist named Lilith Whitman, and evidently Germany has a uh, – a, let's say an intelligence agency. Every country has an intelligence <laughs> agency, Dave. Well, yes, but this one's <laughs> called the Federal Telecommunications Service. Mm -hmm. um, and they uh, there's, there was suspicion that this was a camouflage authority for a secret intelligence agency. I see. So, you know, this is the, the, the plain white van outside. <laughs> Flowers by Irving. <laughs> right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um and so what this activist did was sent a package with an air tag in it uh, to this agency to see where it went. Hmm. And they could track where it went. And they got that information back, and I'm imagining. They got the information back from where the air tag went and so was able to verify uh, the existence of this agency, but more importantly, where they reside. Huh. <laughs> right. So because right, they have a shipping program, right? Yeah. They they this is a uh, uh this is an intelligence agency's front company. Yes. Which, which intelligence agencies do all the time. Yes. So nobody should get bent out of shape about this. This is just the trade craft of intelligence agencies. I mean, yeah, you can argue that maybe we shouldn't be doing this, but it's it's the state of the world. It, it is what it is. Sure. Um. So this this company, this agency set up this company. They receive packages, and when they get packages, they go, well, we better send these back to headquarters. Right. 
And that's what they did. And that's exactly what they did. (laughs) Yes. And so the location of headquarters was revealed. I will bet that every intelligence agency, once this story broke, has changed their policy (laughs) if they hadn't done so already. Yeah. Well, and it reminds me of that we had stories, I don't know, it's probably been over a year now, where you had um, uh, soldiers and and other uh, agents of the government who who had— Using a fitness app? Using fitness apps, right. right. And so they were able to—basically the fitness apps were mapping out their routines, their— their morning exercise or whatever. I, it was it was aggregate data. I remember, I can't remember which fitness app it was, but they were saying, look at all the aggregate data to see where people all over the world run. Mm-hmm. And then there were like these hot spots in Afghanistan where a bunch of right. a bunch of people right. were doing exercise. And you're like, hmm, who has cell phones and is that Afghanistan that needs to keep fit? Right. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Right. Exactly. So uh, I think this is interesting for a lot of reasons. Um, to tag on to the the Apple story, um, Apple, in response to some of the criticisms about AirTags being able to be used for things like stalkers, right? They've updated some of the functionality of it. Evidently, the I think the AirTags will um, sort of signal their existence more often if if they're if they're not near the uh, the iOS device that initialized them, right? They make a beeping sound. Which after a certain amount of time, I think it's 24 hours, something like that, which is designed so that if, for example, you know, I dropped an air tag into your coat pocket right. to keep an eye on you, after 24 hours, if that air tag wasn't within the proximity of me, it starts beeping to alert you that you have an air tag on you. Right. And so you'd say, What's that beeping noise in my coat pocket? Pull it out and say, Oh, Dave. Right. <laughs> he said it again. <laughs> I'll bet you you can open that air tag up and disable that beeper. Ah, well, funny you should say that, Joe, because okay. there was a gentleman. Uh, where there's a need, there's a supply, right? And right. there was a gentleman who set up an Etsy shop of modified air tags. <laughs> With their speakers uh, disabled, um, and uh, the shop didn't stay up for long. Yeah, Etsy took it down? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't matter. They're, they're still out there selling them. It's just they're not sure. selling them on Etsy. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me when my when one of, <laughs> when my youngest child was was a toddler, uh, we got him one of those exorcisers. You know what those are? Yes. Yes. Yeah, my so, daughter and son both had one of those. Yeah. So an exorcisor is a little thing you plop the kid down in and it has a bunch of different little activities. Uh, this one had uh, kind of you, – you put the kid in this little um, – I don't know, like a little seat they sit in. But It's it like has, an old walker but it, the kid Without is, the wheels. Without the, without so they, the wheels and so the kids – So they can't go down the steps right, into exactly. the basement. <laughs> like my sister right. did when she was a kid. <laughs> right. But the seat ha- on this one had ball bearings so they could spin around right. and get to these different things. And it, it's great. It works great. You go, you know, you stick the kid somewhere. You know where the kid is. The kid is occupied. All good. Yeah. But this particular exorcister had a button that the kid could press, and it would play some electronic song. Uh. Let me tell you, Joe. It didn't take me long to get in there with a screwdriver and clip the leads on that <laughs> music thing because it was driving me up a wall. Right. Right. Yeah. So anyway. All right, that is my story this week. Joe, what do you have for us? Dave, my story comes from McKenna Oxenden, right here in our hometown of Baltimore, Mm. from the Baltimore Sun. Okay. Uh, And she has a great story about how Baltimore, the city of Baltimore, fell victim to a phishing scam. Hmm. I I don't know that I would say it's a phishing scam, uh, although it's an interesting story. So here's what happened. 
Baltimore has a bunch of contractors it does business with. Yeah. Uh, just like every other government does. Sure. And there was one contractor who had done business with the mayor's office of children and family success. Hmm. Uh, and the inspector general of Baltimore city, who is named Isabel Mercedes Cummings, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she is, she, she does audits of the city and finds out what's going on. And, and she, she found out that, that this office uh, asked the office of payroll and budgets, which is the actual payment office right. to send $376,000 to a fraudulent bank account. Oh, so here's what happened. This is a business email compromise case. And mm-hmm. we see this happen a lot. Mm-hmm. This business that does work for the city of Baltimore, their email was compromised. Mm-hmm. And this malicious actor actually sent emails to the city of Baltimore as a member of this company mm-hmm. using that person's email address. Mm-hmm. And they said what we frequently see in uh, in these attacks, here are some new banking details. Right, right. Okay? We've updated our banking uh, We've updated information. Our banking Here's details. the new information. And this happened over a year ago. So in December of 2020, uh, somebody in the the office, the the uh, office, the children's office received this email and they went to the the billing and payment office, the the payroll office, and they said, we got to change these credentials. The payment was made. Hmm. The bank had flagged the account as fraudulent and returned the money to the city of Baltimore. Wow. Right? So the bank was the hero in this story. Well, hold on, Dave. Oh. Uh, <laughs> We're not I done spoke, yet. I spoke too soon. <laughs> you spoke too soon. Uh. That bank was a hero in this story. <laughs> okay. Right? <laughs> a few weeks later, in January of 2021, these guys realize their bank account's been shut down, and they send another email to Baltimore going, our details have changed again. And Baltimore changes the payment address. This time, they were successful in sending the uh, $376,000. Wow. Once they once the bank realized it was fraudulent, the bank froze the account, and they managed to return $38,000 to the city of Baltimore. Mm. And the company filed a claim with their insurance. Their uh, They had some kind of cyber insurance, and they got $50,000. Okay. So the vast majority of this money, close to $350,000, is gone. Yeah. The hackers got away with it, these wow. malicious actors. Uh, so here's my question for you, Dave. What I'd like to discuss with you, mm-hmm. who do you think is culpable here? Do you think this this contractor is, is more culpable, or do you think the city of Baltimore is more culpable, or do you think they both share responsibility? Oh, boy, that's an interesting question. Who is on the hook for this? Yeah. So we could say the contractor is responsible because they did an inadequate job of protecting their own systems. That's right. Uh, they allowed this fraudulent request to come through their infrastructure. Correct. Uh, we could say that the city was culpable for not uh, doing their own due diligence and and verifying with the contractor that the change was legit. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, ultimately, I guess if we don't want to blame any of the victims, <laughs> the right, bad right. guys are culpable. Right. No, that's but... <laughs> that's one hundred percent correct. These guys are criminals, right? And right. these guys are. Uh, but you know, th- there's there's three hundred fifty thousand dollars. It's gone. Somebody's yeah. got to bear the responsibility of that, right? And yes, and so there you have to yes. Yeah, I get. Yeah, hmm. So who? I I don't know who who carries that. I, I, I it's a tough question for me. And I wonder what the insurance company said here. Well, the insurance company said, "Here's your fifty thousand dollars at maximum the maximum payment that you that you're entitled I to." I see. They gave I it see. to him. Yeah. 
Um, but huh. that's so now the company is still out a bunch of money, right? I, I don't know. I don't know who, well, who what happens here. So right, but I guess so. Part of the question is what happens next, and I, right. I suppose does is the contractor because it wasn't a legit request from the contractor. It's not like it's not like the contractor provided three hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of services, right? But then that three hundred fifty thousand dollars of services went to the scammers instead of the contractor. Yeah, it, it may actually be that the contractor did provide three hundred fifty thousand dollars. Right. Of services. So and in that case, is the contractor out the three hundred fifty thousand dollars because right uh, the city paid that money out? Yep. Uh, based on information from the contractor. Yeah, I don't. The information came from the contractor. That is where I tend to go with this. Yeah. Uh, although, then wouldn't it be up to the contractor to then? Go to their own insurance company and say we got hit, so right. we want the three hundred fifty thousand or whatever our policy is right. for. And that's what yeah. they did, but they only got fifty grand. The contractor, the, only, con- got the contractor only got fifty grand. The contractor only got fifty grand. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, so they, I mean, they had they weren't adequately covered, I guess you yep. could say. That's right. Um, that's right. Uh, you know, I I think this is going to be something the contractor just has to live with. It's uh, but I will say this that the the article quotes uh. Director of finance director Henry Raymond, and they and he says they immediately strengthened internal controls. Mm. Um, this is something we've we've been screaming from the mountaintop for a very long time, Dave. And mm-hmm. that is whenever anybody does something that's out of ordinary, the process like changing banking credentials, that is something that requires uh, a phone call, right? At at a, at a minimum, right? Because if the person in the uh, the office of what is it, child and family. Success. Yeah. If that person just picked up the phone and said, "Hey, are you trying to change your banking details with me?" Right. This would never be in the Baltimore Sun. Right. This would have been uh, something stopped. Now, uh, if the contractor had physical protections on their email account, like physical uh, multi-factor authentication, like a YubiKey or a Google Titan or some some kind of FIDO uh, open standard. FIDO is an open standard, by the way. Yeah. Um, we get comments. Uh, I seem like I'm endorsing. YubiKey. I'm not endorsing YubiKey. YubiKey uses Fido, and that's open. Anybody can build a Fido solution. Okay. Uh, but if they if they were to put put something in place like that, this would have stopped the account takeover because they never would have been able to just log in with just a username and password. Yeah. So there are multiple opportunities from many parts in this story yeah. to have done better. Right. I agree. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I suppose uh, I you know that's money that isn't going to be used. To help the folks in Baltimore, right? No, it's not. Yeah, it's it's money that's uh, that's going to uh, help some scammer and probably help him or her build a, but probably him, uh, <laughs> much much larger uh, empire of scams. Yeah. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes for the show. Uh, Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Our catch of the day comes from a listener who calls themselves G, who writes, Gents, this spam actually required me to do some research. Apparently, they are looking for Oracle credentials. Hmm. Clue number one was that the email appeared to be forwarded by me uh, to get past the email filtering system that some companies use. Clue number two was that I had no idea what they were talking about, hence the research. After looking at the header for fun... 
fun, he says. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what you do in your spare time, Joe, but uh, looking through email headers is right up there at the top of my list. They fed the link into VirusTotal, and one of the services found that it was suspicious. Mm. So this person says even though they use Linux, they did not open the attachment, which is wise, I think. <laughs> Very wise. Right. So here's the message, Dave. Why don't you read the message? That All right. The message is, Hi, we've requested for DLT template to be activated on our account severally, but nothing has been done. Please find below for our DLT files and do the needful immediately. Recipients, download link, one item, dlttemplate.rar, 200 kilobytes. Thank you. So this is obviously, uh, an RAR is a uh, WinRAR archive. Yeah. Like and a compressed file. Compressed file. Yep. Probably has something malicious in it. 200 kilobytes. <laughs> Count on it. Might not be that big. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Um, what, we see this frequently. I'd like to know, there, there's, some, there's some language this is being transferred, mm. for, or translated from, rather. Do the needful. We yeah. see that phrase frequently. I'd like to know what language that comes from. Mm-hmm. Do the needful. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. As I guess that'd be, yeah, I don't know how we could reverse engineer that, but hmm, interesting. All right. Well, uh, good for you, G, for not falling for it. Right. <laughs> that was a fun one. Yep. Again, if you have a catch of the day for us, you can send it to us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Joshua Neal. He is the chief data scientist for Securonics. Here's our conversation. I think the actors who are executing these techniques are new and they're and they have different motives. So, you know, the the nation states for a long time, um, at least my career, 20 years uh, now, they've been doing these kind of things. They use system tools that are built in. They don't need to import malware. Um, they already have credentials. And they execute kill chains, as described by MITRE um, attack techniques. Uh, the, these, these, are, these are our understanding of, uh, of the nation state tactics. What we've seen in the last few years, however, is that the criminals have gotten more sophisticated. And they've begun adopting the, the methods of the nation states. And doing the same things, living off the land, um, conducting uh, uh, extensive kill chain activity, you know, multiple steps within an enterprise after, after the initial exploit or initial compromise in order to identify the right assets that they want to ransom or drop coin miners or, or steal information from. So we're starting to see a blurring of lines in the techniques between the nation states and the criminals and I think that's why you're seeing so much success out of ransomware. This, these are human-operated groups. They don't drop ransom payloads on the first machine they get access to. They're penetrating further into the enterprise to identify really valuable assets that the company actually might be willing to pay a ransom for rather than, you know, Joe User's laptop. And so I think the, the incentives financial incentives of ransomware have aligned up with the need to go further into an enterprise, and that's lined up with more of these advanced techniques that look a lot more similar to uh, nation-state behavior. 
can we walk through a, a hypothetical scenario together? I mean, suppose I'm the you know proprietor of uh, Acme Widgets Incorporated, and uh, you know I've got a successful business, a few thousand employees, and we've been you know, making widgets for uh, a decade or so. If uh, if a bad actor has me in their sights, can we walk through how they would go about doing the things that they would want to do? Sure. Um, you know, I'll, I'll just use one example. I, I, I'm not going to represent every attack in this. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, so in order to uh, avoid a phishing email and the sophisticated blocking they would have on the phishing side, you know, the adversary may run a brute force campaign against uh, open facing web servers for the enterprise. They would bombard the enterprise with millions, if not billions of connection requests, authentication requests, and uh, then get lucky and identify a combination of user and password, which will give them access. Once they have access to this open web server, it's fairly trivial to escalate privileges and be able to install arbitrary software on that server. Um, Typically, they'll want some uh, element of command and control installed, so there'll be a, a remote access tool of some kind, along with persistence. They'll change the start menu and the and the um, you know maybe some registry changes in order to uh, survive a restart or a reboot. From there, you know it's even among nation states uh, quite common that the adversary doesn't know the internal authentication topology, where they can get to, what assets you know, and services are available. So they'll conduct internal reconnaissance. You know, a lot of times this is in the form of port scanning um, or uh, attempted authentications to various assets. They may do some um, uh, recon on the machine itself, you know, listing, connecting machines to that machine, uh, accounts, maybe scrape memory to get more credentials from memory from that machine. Once they identify likely next hops, um, they'll laterally move. This is uh, can be done through remote code execution or, or an actual interactive login like a um, SSH or RDP to another machine. And sometimes the next hop is the victim. They want to uh, drop uh, a ransomware payload on that victim machine because they've found a, you know, a, I don't know, maybe a, a SQL server with a whole bunch of important data on it. But commonly, even that next hop isn't enough, isn't uh, attractive enough, uh, or maybe it's maybe they want multiple victim machines. Typically, they do. So they'll continue this iterative process of sort of reconnaissance on the box and on the network, followed by a lateral move, followed by reconnaissance on the box and on the network, followed by a lateral move. In the government, uh, you know, I used to work for the Department of Energy. You know, we'd see kill chains, and even at Microsoft, I, we would see kill chains that were 15, 20 steps long. You know, the solar winds attack was extremely complicated in terms of the of this uh, structure of of lateral plus recon. But eventually, um, they find the right victim machines, and in this case, since it's a ransomware attack, they'll drop payloads um, and execute them. And at that point, uh, the victim machines are encrypted and they'll obviously send a painful message to the organization saying, you know, you better pay up or you never get your data back. What sort of timeline are are we talking about here? Is this, is this happening quickly or how much are they, are they, how patient are they? How much are they biding their time? 
So it depends on the threat actor, and it depends on, I think, mostly on the on the threat actor and their efficiency. Uh, surprisingly, the nation states will be quieter, and and they, maybe that's not surprising, but they may take longer. They have more patience. Their motives are different. A lot of times, they're not they're not trying to ransom you. They're trying to establish persistence and perhaps steal critical information, and they don't want to be burned. They don't want to be identified for a lot of reasons, one of which being political, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that this could be a problem for their, for their nation. On the other hand, uh, criminals, criminals will move fast. They'll, they'll smash and grab, um, and they'll be loud about it. Not always, but commonly. Even so, with these kill chains, you know, I mean, it varies. I mean, if we're talking about a, a proper human-operated ransomware with well-targeted uh, victim machines, I would estimate that it's anywhere from six hours, you know, to to a week or two to execute a full ransomware attack. We we have seen uh, attacks which took more than a week, and then on the nation state side, we'll see persistence for years. We'll see attackers that are in for six months. Then they'll do something. Then they'll go quiet. Then they'll do something else. And this will happen for years. However, there's a trend. And there's a, uh, I have a bit of a fear. And I, I hate to do FUD. <laughs> sure. But, but there, is, there is something coming, I think, which is any human sort of sequence of events. You know, I'm a, I'm a data scientist, right? So I think about automation. I think about how can I write AI to mimic what the, the humans are doing. And most of the time in defenses, what I'm doing is decision support. I'm not replacing humans, but I'm accelerating them. I think we're seeing this on the offensive side as well. Um, one can imagine a day when the decisions made by the human attack team are, are coded and with a bit of reinforcement learning or other sort of more advanced analytical techniques you know, I think many of the of the tactics currently executed by humans are going to be executed by machines. At that point, if they don't care about being quiet, you know, I could imagine millisecond level attacks instead of six hour level attacks. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we'll see much faster process of lateral and recon to identify the right uh, victims uh, and just blindingly fast, move through the network, drop the ransom payloads, and they're done. <laughs> so I don't know how soon that's coming, but if it occurs to me, I think it's probably occurring to, to our adversaries. You know, again, going back to, to that business person who's doing their best to defend their own network, how much of this is, you know, putting, and I'm <laughs> totally going to mix metaphors here, but how much of this is putting bigger locks on the doors versus... Um, you know, I don't have to outrun the bear. I have to outrun you. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. And I'm not a guy who would say that protection or prevention is is uh, impossible. I, these two things go hand in hand. The, the more protection you have, the more effective your detection is. Because you're reducing the attack surface and you're simplifying the detection effort. But uh, on the other hand, I don't think either protection or locking the locking the gates or leaving the gates open and having some kind of, you know, zero trust, constant authentication sort of approach is the smoking gun. I think it's just a, like everything, a moderation between, you know, investing in protection technologies, antivirus, uh, you know, get your 
authentication and, and credential portfolio uh, and plan together. Yeah, the, these kind of things, you know, vulnerability management, assessments, you know, red teams, these are preparing and, and preventing. And then on the detection side, a, a similar level of investment. I don't think you can put all your eggs in one basket, I think is the answer. Joe, what do you think? Dave, I speak for a lot of Joes when I say I object to the term Joe user. <laughs> it's kind of like I feel really sorry for all the nice women out there whose name is Karen. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. This concept of living off the land is interesting, right? Every computer comes with essentially tons of tools. Computers mm. are very useful and very powerful nowadays. Remember when we were kids and they just came with an operating system, Dave? <laughs> yeah, in ROM. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that was it. And it, I mean, it, it didn't have any tools. You wanted tools, you had to load them up. Now the yep. operating systems come with all these tools. And like I say all the time, tools are useful. They can be used to build a house or tear it down. Right. Right. Uh, this software isn't mal- malware. Right. Right. PowerShell is not malware and, and Secure Copy is not malware. But they can be used to do very malicious things. Mm. So your virus protection is never going to stop you or help you stop somebody from using a legitimate tool to do malicious things like exfiltrate data or change configuration or ensure persistence, Mm -hmm. right? Criminals are getting more sophisticated. And we've been saying this for years. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to see how Joshua is watching this uh, evolve from the, the, the criminals adopting what are nation state tactics? Right. Um, I wonder, are these criminals learning from nation states or are they just following along the same evolution that nation states have always been on? Well, and there's also the speculation that some of them are moonlighting, that they are nation state employees, mm. let's say, and in their free time, they use the skills that they've acquired for personal profit. Yeah. And I, the nation state organizations are willing to look the other way. In some nation states, I'm sure that's fine. Yeah. The hopping around that Joshua describes when moving laterally. This is how I used to get around the internet. Do you remember this? I would <laughs> go on. <laughs> in, in the 1990s, I was I, I actually am proud to con- count myself among one of the first one million users of the internet. Because yeah. if you look at internet users over time, when I started using the internet in 1990, there were less than a million users. So I suspect I'm probably on that list. Yeah. 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 Um, but that's how we used to get around. We used to telnet into, <laughs> into one computer, and then I could use that to telnet to another computer and hop around. Sure. And I'd have connections going from one, two, three, and I'd I'd exit out and have to exit all the way back out. This is age-old stuff that people are still using to move around current networks. Nation states and criminal organizations, while they have the the same uh, the same kind of techniques, they're going to use different tactics. Mm. In those techniques are going to use them differently. Nation states want to be very, very quiet. And they really want to lay low in these environments because their goals are very different from criminal organizations. Criminal mm-hmm. organizations want to monetize the attack. And they want to do that as quickly as possible because they're like a business. They're, they have time pressures. Nation state actors do not want to do that. They want to know stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a different motivation. Joshua's warning about uh, automation and AI uh, is accurate, I think. AI, again, just a tool. Uh, So it's going to be used by these guys to tear down houses, right, if you will. Right, right. Uh, It's interesting to see how we've gone from not enough data to way too much data, Mm. which I think is 
probably an accurate, or almost certainly an accurate statement because false positives are the bane of an analyst's life. Yeah. Chasing down a false positive makes people miserable. It's one of the leading causes of burnout, I think. Yeah. I think I remember reading something about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like what he says about chaining these indicators together. You know, a single indicator is very well, could be a false positive. But when you start seeing a bunch of indicators in a row along, along what is the cyber kill chain, uh, you can start to filter out a lot of the noise and see uh, a lot of these things. Like, you know, somebody running a port scan, that's probably – uh, probably bad, but if if the user is someone like me uh, and I'm a developer and I got to look at my machine to see what ports are open, I'm going to run a port scan on it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But that's going to cause a security analyst to go, hey, Joe, why are you running port scans? And that takes time right? Um, out of his day. But if if that port scan then results in me connecting to some obscure service and then that that machine connecting to another machine, that's not something I generally do. Yeah. So chaining those things together can be, I, I think, very telling. Yeah, I, I I'm a big fan of the notion of of these systems looking for behavioral things, like yeah. you say, not just uh, indicators of compromise, but what are you actually doing? Right. Yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to Joshua Neal for joining us again. He is the chief data scientist for Securonix. I have to say, Joe, I love talking with data scientists. They yeah, they're are, interesting they're people. Always, they're always interesting conversations. I, uh, I like his story, too, how he started as a statistician and got yeah. into cybersecurity. Yeah, yeah. So, again, uh, thanks to Josh Neal for taking the time. All right, that is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.